the Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Hey, everybody. Just wanted to touch base on some emails I've been getting regarding a past episode. Last week, we did the episode of Louise Woodward, and I got some emails back stating that They had thought the evidence against Louise Woodward went more in her favor than I had portrayed. I don't really agree with that, I'm afraid. I guess there was some brain injury that the doctors and the defense went back and forth on. Louise Woodward's attorney, Barry Sheck, did attack. He attacked every bit of evidence, but what he really attacked was saying that one of these subdural hematoma is basically a bruise on the brain was old. And when Louise had jostled the baby in the tub, she had re-aggravated it and that caused the baby's death. The defense also made a case about the wrist injury. The baby, Matthew, had an injury to the right wrist, I believe, and it was fractured. And the defense was saying that was old as well. Okay, so looking at the case in a light most favorable to the defendants. They don't criticize the other physical evidence that was new. There was retinal bleeding that happened that day after the parents left. There was a broken arm that likely happened that day after the parents left. There was a neck injury from the baby's head being snapped backwards. That was new, and that wasn't there when the parents were there in the morning. So what the defense was actually trying to do with this was to imply that it wasn't Louise Woodward at all, because if these injuries that they cited had happened the way they said they happened, that would have meant the parents did it. And that's what the defense was actually trying to do. But the evidence, the physical evidence in this case was overwhelming, and it was overwhelming on the side of the prosecution. So I'm going to have to stand my ground on that one. In today's episode, we have one of the most craziest defendants that I've ever seen in my life. This case was so unnecessary that it still gives me pause today. This is the case of Dr. Richard Sharp. If you're from the area, you'll certainly remember this case. And you're going to have to definitely jump back in the Wayback Machine with me to the year 2000. Before we scurry back into the Wayback Machine, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, I just wanted to point out a new podcast that I've been listening to, Military True Crime Addict. They're actually a new sponsor. The podcast touches on some deep topics, all of which have connections to the military. They cover the usual true crime route, murder, robbery, rape, but they also cover PTSD and the effects PTSD has on the victims and the victim's family. I'm up to episode three on the podcast, and I can tell you that 
podcast is definitely victim-centric. They certainly provide voice to the voiceless in this podcast. You're definitely going to want to check it out. With Military True Crime Addict, you really don't have to know much about the military. I know there's a lot of ranks and they can be confusing, but you really don't have to know all that. The podcast host will take you all through that and let you know where people stand in the pecking order and how it all goes. So don't worry about it if you don't know much about the military to begin with. So in closing on this one, I think if you like Boston Confidential, you're definitely going to love Military True Crime Addict. Check them out, guys. They're a new sponsor. All right, guys, that was Military True Crime Addict, a new sponsor. Give them a try if you can. Let's get on with our episode, though. Richard Shop. The case ended in the metropolitan Boston area in the year 2000. The trials would stretch on, but Richard Shop's story actually began in Shelton, Connecticut. Even back then, he was attached to his wife, Karen. High school sweethearts, and right from Jump Street, things didn't go well. Richard Shop's problems had nothing to do with where he was raised. He was raised in Shelton, Connecticut, which is described as a bucolic, typical New England town. It is just north of Milford, Connecticut, and west of New Haven, I believe. I would say the town tends towards upper middle class, and it's very nice, very desirable place to live. So I don't think any of the shop's problems came from Shelton, living in Shelton, Connecticut at any rate. All right, guys. So on to Richard's early life. Let me tell you a little bit about his family life. But first, one word from our sponsor. Hey guys, just a word from our sponsor, Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace for advertisers and podcasters. What Podcorn successfully does is they remove the middleman between the podcaster and the advertiser. In days past, you'd have to get some type of agent to go around and drum up sponsorships. But Podcorn gets rid of that. Their platform is now that agent. And all of those sponsors are right on the other side of the Podcorn platform, guys. One of the things I needed to make a platform like this work for me is ease of use. I'm not super computer literate here, and I need things to go the way they should go the first time. And that's what happens with Podcorn. You really just follow the prompts on the website, and it takes you all the way through it. So you're probably wondering how you're going to get paid as a podcaster. It's very simple. We'll just take last week's episode of Boston Confidential as an example. Earlier in the week, I had recorded three ads for Podcorn, and I submitted them. You submit the ads online, and they're approved, and then you put them into your podcast. And that's what I did. The only other thing you really have to do is write in the show notes. This episode was sponsored by Podcorn. And magically, you get paid the next day. My most recent podcast aired on Monday, March 22nd, 2021. And by 9 a.m., it's 9 a.m. now here on Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. And I've already been paid for them. So it's that easy, guys. With PodCoin, you also maintain full artistic control over your podcast. You choose when and where to monetize, and it's all on you. And it's ease of use is paramount with this company. you got to check them out, PodCoin. 
It's a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers. All right, guys, on to Richard Sharp's early life. He was born in 1954 in Derby, Connecticut. Shortly thereafter, his father moved the family to nearby Shelton, Connecticut, which was a little more upscale. And at that time, it was just after World War II, and all the factories in the north were moving to the south because of cheaper labor costs. So that kind of decimated the Derby Shelton area of Connecticut because there were a lot of factories and manufacturing there. So there was a downturn in the economy around that time just after World War II when Richard was born. But Richard's dad was a toolmaker, and he was also a part-time electrician. And these occupations definitely put money on the shop's kitchen table. They were able to afford a house. They bought a house in Derby after Richard was born, right across from the country club. Again, it was an area in decline, but still relatively nice and bucolic. So Richard's father was a toolmaker slash electrician around the area, but unfortunately he was also more than that. He was a very heavy gambler and a raging alcoholic. Richard Sharp's home life is sort of a textbook of how to develop children with emotional and psychological problems. I can't go as far as to say it made him a killer, but it certainly screwed him up and his brother up. The treatment the kids received from Richard Sharp's father was quite frankly, torture. Benjamin Sharp, the father, was just never happy. There was never any extra money due to his gambling and alcoholism. And his father's idea of fun was to come home and attack his wife and children after he'd been drinking. And it was just hellacious. The verbal attacks were almost as bad as the physical attacks. He'd call his sons and daughters dumb Fs, stupid, and this would happen all the time. And once Benjamin Sharp would focus in on abusing the kids, their mother, Lori, tried to intervene, but that would put the onus on her, and she'd be getting a beating, and she'd be getting derided for every little thing wrong in the house. It was just a cornucopia of domestic abuse. And back in the 50s and 60s, there was literally nothing you could do about it. The police wouldn't intervene in family matters. And this guy was just a tyrant. And he screwed all his kids up as a result of it. So Benjamin Sharp was the dad and Laurie was the mom. Laurie was a stay-at-home mom with these kids. And she tried to do the best she can. She had a great reputation around town. But her husband's reputation was getting worse as just a drunk gambler and difficult to be around on a good day. So things weren't great in the shop household, I'll tell you that. Let me tell you a little bit more about the brothers and one sister. Robert Sharp was the first born in the family, and he was born 14 years prior to Richard's arrival. Richard's next older brother, Ben, arrived a short time later. Then Richard himself in 1954, followed by a sister named Lori. And I think I called the mom Lori as well, but her real name was Laura. So it's difficult to describe to you the cornucopia of abuse that the shops grew up in. 
The only person who seemed to get any type of break was Richard Sharp's youngest sister, Lori. And the father didn't want to abuse her physically for some reason, but she witnessed all of this abuse. And the mother was abused in front of the children verbally and physically all the time. So I'm trying to get that across to you. This level of physical and mental abuse was just a pressure cooker for these kids. And I'm not trying to relay the abuse angle to mitigate what Richard Sharp would later do in life, but did all of this abuse turn a few screws loose in Richard's head? Yes, I believe that to be true. I certainly believe that to be true. When Richard Sharp was four, his oldest brother left. Robert left the house. If you remember, he was 14 years older, so he left and got his own life going. But I believe Richard took that as some type of abandonment as well. Later, years on, after all this abuse, his other brother, Ben, departed when he was 19. He couldn't handle all the abuse. The abuse actually ramped up when Ben was about 19 and he left. And he went to California with his fiancée, who would later become his wife. And Richard would cry to him. I believe Richard was about seven years old at this time. Cry to him all the time, get me out of here. Dad's crazy. I want to come live with you. So it was just all this abuse and abandonment. And around this time, Richard would scurry away from his father, who would be in the process of trying to physically beat him, and he'd hide in the bathroom. And Richard would later say that Dad wouldn't break down the bathroom door because he'd just have to fix it again. So when Richard was hiding in the bathroom, he'd come across his sister's clothes. And I know this is crazy, but Richard began putting on Laurie's clothes while he was hiding from his dad. And I think he made the connection that I'm safe here. Laurie doesn't get abused and she dresses like that. So I think this was a safety mechanism and this safety mechanism for Richard led him to cross-dressing. We now call it transgenderism, but back in those days it was called cross-dressing. Cross-dressing would be a defining characteristic of Richard Sharp's life all the way up until the end. Unfortunately, so was his abuse. He suffered from that for the rest of his life, and I believe the rest of his family members did as well. There was one incident when Richard was 10 years old. He witnessed his older brother, Ben, struck with a fireplace poker by his father. And Ben just started gushing blood. It was a horrific scene. And Ben had done nothing to deserve this type of treatment. It just came out of nowhere from the father. And it really just panicked Richard. And I believe all the kids were panicked by this type of abuse. There'd be no way you could come out of that household a normal person. All right, guys, we'll continue with Richard's early life up until high school when we get back from this word from our sponsor. Stand by. All right, guys, just a word from one of our sponsors, Podcorn. Podcorn was actually Boston Confidential's first sponsor, so I'm pretty fond of them. The fact of the matter is, I was a client of theirs before they were a sponsor of mine. And one of the reasons I use Podcorn is I needed this marketplace, a bridge in the industry. It bridges the advertiser's needs with the podcaster's needs. And they've cut out the middleman in this scenario. Before, in days past, you'd have to go 
find an agent for them to solicit all these brands and all this, Podcorn gets rid of that. Podcorn's a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers, and it's very easy to use. And believe me, ease of use was paramount in my selecting Podcorn. I'm not super computer savvy. I do all right, but I get frustrated when things don't go well the first time, and I don't have a lot of time to lose on these things. And that's what you get from Podcorn. You just follow the prompts on their website, and then advertisers come to you, and you select the ones you may want to work for. One of the things that gave me pause about going to advertisers was I simply didn't know how much to charge them. Podcorn also has an answer for that. They give you an industry-specific price guide so you can have some confidence that what you're offering is acceptable in the industry. Also with Podcorn, you never give up any artistic or creative control over your podcast. Podcorn is committed to transparency and ease of use. All right, guys, Podcorn, check them out. They'll be in our show notes. All right, guys, so I think we've covered the fact that Richard Sharp's childhood was a complete horror. So he got to high school and he started kind of experimenting with drugs, rock and roll, long hair, not hardcore drugs, but marijuana and beer, basically what most people would get into in high school. So he also met a beautiful young freshman by the name of Karen Hatfield. Karen Hatfield's family was everything Richard's was not. They were successful. They had roots in the community. They sat down for Sunday dinner. They cared about their kids. The shop household was just insane. I think we've covered that. I think I've given you a good impression about how it went, but it was verbal and physical abuse at the shop household almost every day. And Karen's home stood in stark contrast to that. She had a loving, stable home. Karen Hatfield's parents never liked Richard. They thought he was scraggly, unkempt, had a bad attitude, and was getting increasingly possessive of their daughter, Karen. Karen was a top student. She loved kids. She was involved in everything, several different clubs, until she got involved with Richard's shop, and they became an exclusive item almost right away. The strange thing about Richard's shop is... Despite the fact that he was engaging in this cross-dressing, or as we more commonly call it today, transgenderism, he was wholly, wholly heterosexual. He had no interest in men at all. In fact, he was described as quite a flirt, loved women, and girls seemed to like him. Again, if you look at photographs of Richard as a man and compare them to when he was in high school, he was a much better looking person in high school than as an adult. He had several plastic surgeries as an adult, but as a kid, his face was full. He had you know, long hair like they did back in the day, and girls seemed to be attracted to his sharp features, if you will, for lack of a better word. He almost had feminine-like features, and I gotta say, chicks, chicks dug him. But Richard only had eyes for Karen, and that's the way it was gonna be all the way through high school. Karen's parents didn't like it. They simply didn't like Richard, but there was little they could do about it. 
And if anybody's had a headstrong 16-year-old daughter, you'll understand what I'm talking about. But these two continued boyfriend and girlfriend all through high school. There'd be signs of the abuse to come, but they were steady as a rock through high school anyway. So things were going on pretty well for this couple, Richard and Karen. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, by senior year in high school, Karen ends up pregnant. The Hatfields certainly weren't happy about this, and it was just a mess, but they continued on. They both graduated, and pretty soon, Karen gave birth to their first daughter, Shannon Sharp. Shannon was born on May 31st, 1973, about three weeks before her parents' high school graduation. Now, Richard wasn't getting good grades in high school, not super good grades. He was getting by, but he was elected prom king. And that had to grate on Karen a little bit because she was much more attractive than the prom queen. But in the 70s, you couldn't be prom queen if you were big and pregnant. So baby Shannon comes along and the couple is trying to go through the motions of being teenage parents. Richard had applied to some colleges, but he wasn't a blazingly smart student. Karen, for the other end of it, I think could have really gotten in anywhere, but now she's got a, an infant, so it's difficult. Life is difficult now. And as teenage parents tend to do, they compounded their mistake by getting married. And on their honeymoon, this was described as the honeymoon from hell. And during this honeymoon, the new wife, Karen, did not set the alarm clock for the next day and Richard overslept. And when he overslept, he promptly got up and threw the alarm clock right off his new wife's face. And this was the first actual physical abuse that Karen would suffer at his hands, at Richard's hands, and it wouldn't be the last. She should have headed for the hills at that point, but we all know how teenagers are. They were trying to make it work but nothing would work with Richard Sharp. So the abuse gets worse for Karen, and Richard abuses her directly in front of the kids. He simply doesn't care. He's a lousy father from Jump Street, and it would only get worse. Richard ends up at University of Bridgeport studying mechanical engineering. He ends up with a degree in that four years later and applies to a master's degree program at Rensselaer University's Hartford Graduate Center, and he's accepted. So this guy is a brilliant guy when he focuses mind, but otherwise he's just stone cold crazy. So the domestic violence in this case continues to spiral out of control. But back in those days, it was a family issue and other people, other agencies didn't get involved, right? Your neighbors didn't get involved in your business. So by 1976, Richard had imprisoned Karen in their home for about 48 straight hours. He abused the crap out of her. And then he went to the hospital. And while she's being treated, Richard whispers in her ear, I want you to die. And he had inflicted all those injuries and kept a prisoner in their apartment or their house. And he was just continually drunk and abusive. He'd abuse his wife in front of his kids and it was just insane. I hope I'm getting that across to you guys, that Richard Sharp actually took his father's place. His father made him into an image of himself. 
So this is what happens when you're abused as a kid. You turn into an abuser, and that's what happened with Richard Sharp. So as the 70s roll into the 80s, things continue about the same, except Richard Sharp enrolled in medical school. His abuse against his daughter, Shannon, was just insane as well. He had done basically what he had done to the mother, to the daughter. So that's where this relationship was. But by 1985, the shops moved to the Boston area where Richard had enrolled in Harvard Medical School. And that's what I'm trying to tell you guys. This guy is brilliant. He's a lot of things. He's brilliant. He's abusive. He's a drug addict. He's an alcoholic. And he's a walking a-hole. On the other hand, he's also this brilliant doctor who wants to eliminate cancer from the world. It's just crazy. It's a crazy story. All right, so the 90s roll around, and Richard was completing his residency at Harvard Medical School. He found a career as a research scientist with the Biomedical Research Center or something. The guy was an absolute genius, and he had focused on dermatology. And whatever Richard focused on, he mastered it. And he did so in this discipline as well. So Richard was finally out of school and he started his practice on Cape Ann, which is a section of Massachusetts that encompasses Gloucester, Massachusetts. Beautiful community located on the North Shore of Massachusetts, kind of near New Hampshire, but it's absolutely stunning in its beauty, Gloucester and the surrounding towns. So things were going well. Richard started making some money. He started his practice. And like everything with Richard, it took off because he focused on it. And he was good with patients on some level, but other patients would complain. They'd have a mole on their shoulder and he'd make them get completely naked and make them feel really uncomfortable. But on the other hand, the guy was an absolute genius. So you had both praise and complaints coming from his patients, you know? And you had a lot of complaints coming from people who worked for Richard's shop. He was just impossible to be around. He was just an ass. And his wife, who had went to nursing school in this interim, worked for Richard in his dermatology office in Gloucester. And he'd go on to start a few more businesses. And Karen was always right there with him. But Richard continued to abuse his family, and I'm talking crazy abuse. He'd just continually gnaw at Karen. He'd physically hit Shannon. He'd physically hit the wife in front of Shannon as well. It was just crazy. And there was a big blowout on one New Year's Eve where Richard got drunk and actually beat his wife, Karen, beat her bloody and ended up stabbing her with a fork in the forehead. And so, in my opinion, the abuse is actually escalating now because Richard is now addicted to painkillers, which he can prescribe himself. He's always drank to excess, and his general moodiness increased as well. He was just impossible. I don't know why Karen didn't pick up and just run away, but the story continues, guys. So the more erratic Richard's behavior got, the better his business did. It was kind of crazy. He was acting like an ass in all these places at home, out socially. But at work, his dermatological practice was taking off. On the domestic violence front, I think at this point, you'd have to say that Karen 
is suffering from domestic violence syndrome, where she's trying to find beauty in her abuser, all these forgiveness. It's like a drama show where this drama happens, they fight, make up. It's all very passionate and it can get kind of addicting, even for the woman. And I think that's what was happening here. But in 1992, Karen became pregnant and she was ecstatic. She wanted to have more kids. And as happy as Karen was, her parents hit the floor. They just couldn't believe that Karen would subject another child to Richard's behavior. They also were contemplating the fact that maybe now, when she was pregnant, she would leave this ass because he thought nothing of hitting her when she was pregnant. Nothing of hitting her. Okay, so life continues on. In 1995, Michael, baby Michael, was followed by his sister, Allie. And so now there was two young kids at home, and Richard was the worst father who's ever been imagined. And Shannon would say in later depositions and protective orders that her father was physically and mentally abusive to her directly, hitting her and all this. And she didn't even call him dad. She called him Richard. And I think that speaks volumes. And the other two kids would go on to hate this guy as well. But by this point, Richard was so screwed up on drugs, alcohol, and his mental illnesses. I'm, I'm not forgetting that. I think he was made mentally ill by his own father. And so life has to be just agony for this family, including Richard up to this point, right? You kind of root for the guy to get some help until he does what he does. But let's get to the crime, guys. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a long road here from the 60s to the 90s. All right, in 1995, in addition to baby Allie coming into the household, Richard started a new business, and he founded this business. It was called ClickMed originally, but it was going to be a nationwide skincare laser hair removal business, and the business exploded, like everything with this guy. Whatever he touches in business and in life, except his family, turns to gold. This ClickMed thing started small right out of his medical practice, but man, did it get big and it turned Richard into a millionaire almost overnight. The business morphed into something called laser hair, where he'd have all these franchisees or something similar paying to use his system in their offices. And it made Richard a millionaire many times over, three, four, five times over. The business was doing really well. And adding more money to this guy's pocket was like adding gasoline to a fire. By 1997, Richard was literally a millionaire. Previously, he had a business that did over a million dollars in business. But in 1997, he had seven zeros in his bank account. So he was a millionaire, not just on paper, but in reality. Karen actually liked Richard working so many hours because that meant he couldn't be home. And whenever Richard came home, the kids, their temperature, if you will, would go up. They'd just be on God. And life was better at the Gloucester house without Richard. Come 1999, financially, things were going even better. But at this point, and I think this was a turning point for Karen, Karen coordinated a high school reunion for their Shelton 
high school class. And naturally, I could have seen this coming a mile away. I don't know why Karen couldn't. But Richard got so bleep-faced drunk at this reunion. Uh, he almost got into a fight. The DJ had to physically remove him. He was condescending to Karen and just his usual meanness and drunkenness. And that really ruined it for Karen. She had taken a lead in coordinating this reunion and was looking forward to it. And I think the fact that Richard ruined it intentionally for her was a turning point in Karen's life. And it would also be a turning point in Richard's life as well, although he didn't know it yet. All right, so as November 1999 rolls around, things are about the same at the household, even after Richard had screwed up Karen's high school reunion. But I think that stayed in the back of Karen's mind. And Lay's hair, I think I called it Lay's hair earlier. The business name was Lay's hair, L-A-S-E-H-A-I-R, was just booming and it was Doing so well, Richard decided to close his dermatological practice in Gloucester and just focus on the businesses, and money was just pouring in. So Karen was looking for any type of separation she could get from Richard, and the duo bought a house in Gloucester at 19 Hull Street. It was a beautiful home, but it needed some work, and this is where Karen came in. She was always into the kids, but... She was also directing all these renovations at the house, and she really loved it. Richard was still a walking a-hole for his part. His transgenderism or cross-dressing increased to the point where he was wearing women's underwear most days. And Karen was getting concerned that the children would see this behavior, which struck her as extremely odd. She kind of thought it was benign going forward. And she did know about his cross-dressing, but now he was going out in public as a woman. And his alcoholism and drug abuse actually increased during this period. And if you've ever seen Richard dressed as a woman, it's not a pretty sight. So I could see how people would be upset and really not want that. That would be confusing to have around your young children. So that's what was going on in 1999. During this time frame, Karen started an affair with the builder of her house who was handling all the remodeling. I guess he was the general contractor. And Richard at one point came home and found them in bed together. Their relationship, their marriage had been over for, for quite some time. And Karen was just decidedly unhappy. And she actually found some happiness with this guy. And I was reading this book, and I'll tell you more about the book later, you're kind of rooting for her to just go with this contractor and let Richard go. I don't think he'd have a long life expectancy, but it was difficult for Karen to do, although she really needed to. When Richard discovered Karen having an affair, caught them in the act really at the house, he totally lost it and went into a massively deep depression. Karen had had it and she was going to file for divorce. She began talking to an attorney, a high-powered divorce attorney by the name of Jacob Atwood. He was a real pit bull in the Boston community. He was the divorce attorney, celebrities called, to handle their divorce. He was a shock, really. 
So when Richard finds out about this with uh, adding Atwood to the legal team and all this, he loses it. And he ends up filing for divorce first. I guess he thought that was going to make a difference. I don't think it does. So Richard begins stalking Karen, and he's always been a crappy father to the kids. So he'd try to make them an issue, and it was the typical divorce nonsense, right? Hurt one another, use the kids to hurt one another. I don't think Karen was at fault. This guy was just a total lunatic. But on June 14, 2000, Karen was feeling for the first time in her life that there were some good days ahead of her. She was doing her own thing. The family had money. She didn't have a lot of worries. The kids were in private school. And she was in the process of divorcing this crazy person. And she was looking forward to a new life. And to that end, she arranged a cruise, like a dinner cruise around Gloucester Harbor with some of her friends. And they all were drinking, dancing, and living it up. And Richard Sharp barely entered into her mind during this great time she had sailing around Gloucester Harbor at night in the summertime with her friends. She must have thought, hey, better days ahead. But that wasn't to be for Karen. After the cruise ended, she was leaving with her friends and she dropped some friends off. But she got a message or a phone call that her babysitter had been injured while they were roughhousing with one of the kids. I guess their cornea, their eye had been scratched by Allie or Michael, one of the kids, while they were playing, and the babysitter felt like she needed to go to the emergency room. But Karen was a nurse, and she was heading home pretty quickly. So they all decided to stay put and wait for Karen to come home. So it was said by Karen's friends at the end of this cruise, Karen was on a high. She saw things that were starting to go right for her, and she was putting Richard and all of his abuse, physical and mental, in the rearview mirror, and she was ecstatic on this day. But what would happen next was just barbaric. So Karen arrives back at her new Gloucester home. This was the end of a night that her friends had called Karen's coming out party, and she was just giddy with excitement. So she returns to the house in Gloucester and her brother Jamie and his girlfriend Christine Ryan are present. And the babysitter's name was Kristen Dormitzer. And Kristen had been hired to watch Mikey and Allie. And Mikey and Allie and Kristen had been kind of roughhousing and somehow she got her eye scratched. So that was all the excitement that was going on at Karen's house. So she comes in. And she starts telling Mikey and Allie about her cruise and everybody's upbeat. And now she begins to examine the babysitter, Kristen. And it seems to be at about that point, Richard knocks on the door. He had parked and walked up the driveway so nobody could see him. And so now he's at the door. The babysitter answers. And while the babysitter, Kristen, is talking to Richard, Karen comes out, and he wants Karen to come outside to talk, I guess. He had done this all the time, so nobody was too concerned. Karen basically said, Richard, you're not supposed to be here, and she was a little pissed off, but it was at that moment 
that Richard kicked the door open and it showed him to be holding a 22 caliber rifle. And at this point, Karen screams and starts to run from the hallway area. It's at this point where Richard fires one shot from the rifle at point blank range. The bullet rips through her lungs, her spinal column, and kills her almost instantly. And it's a bloody scene. She's bleeding out all over the floor. The kids come into the foyer and see all this. And everybody starts going absolutely crazy. The children who were sleeping were woken up. And Michael and Allie came out to the foyer. And they saw their mother's lifeless body. And their uncle, Jamie, trying to resuscitate their mother. And it was just a complete and utter horror show. The babysitter, for her part, as soon as she saw Richard with the gun, she ran towards the children and valiantly tried to protect them. And she did a decent job because at that point, Richard just walked away. He walked out of the front yard and back to his car. So immediately, a manhunt ensues looking for Richard. Nobody thought he'd crossed this Rubicon of murder. But he certainly did, and his family was in tatters because of his own stupidity. So Richard goes on the run, and everybody knew that wouldn't last long. He hadn't stashed away any money to make this even remotely plausible. But two days later, Richard was caught in the Great Lakes region of New Hampshire, just outside of a town called Tuftonboro, right on Lake Winnipesaukee. He first stopped at the place in Tuftonboro, but was then directed to a place on Route 109 in nearby Melvin Village. And it was said that Richard's shop was disheveled, looked like he'd been crying all night, was just a total mess. But they gave him a room and let him do his thing. And I think in the morning, by the time the morning rolled around, the New Hampshire State Police had him surrounded, and he was in custody pretty quickly after that. So shortly after his capture, Kevin Burke, the district attorney of Bristol County in Massachusetts, announced that this would be tried as a simple domestic violence case. And as the trial progressed, it's really the route that the prosecutors took. But prosecutors also stated that Richard was after the money. This wasn't about a reconciliation. Richard was concerned that Karen was going to take all of his money, his new house in beautiful Gloucester and all this. And he just wasn't going to have that. He's not the type of personality that's going to allow Karen to get over on him, to use him for all of his work. That's how he'd seen her. He'd actually called her a gold digger at one point, if you can believe that. The defense went with, I think, the only thing that was really available to him. It was an insanity defense. And in a normal circumstance, I do believe Richard Sharp would qualify. But you have to be insane at that moment in time. So I think although he had mental illness, he knew this act was wrong. He tried to run away from it. So it's just a consciousness of guilt. I think he got enough of this murder you know, in his head, in his consciousness, that he knew what was wrong and he needs to suffer the consequences of his actions. 
the insanity defense in Massachusetts and in the rest of the country, I believe, is usually never successful. It's a statistical improbability. You have to really be crazy, like bipolar or schizophrenic. And I don't think Richard was any of those things. I think he was crazy, but he wasn't schizophrenic. He wasn't bipolar. He was just a walking booze bag who hated women, although he wanted to be one. Richard Sharp was very emotional on the stand, and that led to more media focus on this case. And it already had that media element because you had a millionaire Harvard dermatologist who was also a transgender or cross-dressed, or as they called them back then. So the media attention on this case was just insane. There were some other trials involved in this time, but they had to do with the children. Richard's first daughter, Shannon, wanted Mikey and Allie to go with Karen's sister, Kathleen, and Victor Lembo. And there was some battle on that. They did end up getting custody of the children and all was right in that world. But Richard fought them every step of the way, still being an asshole all the way from prison. The trial wasn't much in the way of legal drama, right? People had seen Richard pull the trigger, literally caught red-handed. So the outcome of this trial was never in doubt. And insanity is so difficult to prove. You knew Richard Sharp was going to prison. And ultimately, on November 29, 2001, he was sentenced to life in prison. But the Commonwealth wasn't done with Dr. Richard Sharp just yet. During all of this time in prison, Richard had A, try to escape, B, he was charged with trying to hire hitmen in prison to kill the prosecutor. So Richard was a problem child even in prison. Unfortunately, he tried to commit suicide at a certain point and he was moved out of the prison, which he kind of enjoyed. He successfully committed suicide by hanging in his jail cell on January 5th, 2009. And there ended the chapter of the life of Dr. Richard Sharp. This is one of the most crazy, unnecessary homicides I've ever seen. People should have been able to see this coming. He was so unstable. I don't believe the fact that he maintained a medical license. He was popping pills from a Pez dispenser, right? Like he was a rock star. And people's lives were in his hand. I don't know how this got by the medical licensing authorities, but it did. I believe Karen did the best she could. She was definitely caught in the throes of battered woman syndrome. And she was kind of tied to this guy for money. And he used their children. And she was just a victim in this. She was a victim of domestic violence in this all day long. And I know everybody wishes and prays it was a different outcome. But when you see the deed done, there were so many warning signs here. If you're caught in the throes of domestic violence like Karen Shop was, do me a favor and please call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. And that's the number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Guys, if you're caught in the throes of domestic violence, get some help. 
start here with that phone number. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Hopefully this domestic violence epidemic will one day be solved. But I'll leave you there. I'm going to get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side.